why don't we begin by, if you could take a few minutes and sort of talk about your work and how you actually chose to make change a fo the focus of your work um, as, as a medical professional. You know, you work, you work uh, I think you mentioned that you work as an instructor um, for the School of Medicine, if I'm not mistaken. I started out just as, as my background, I went to graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, I was at Stanford University studying psychology, studying um, health services research, studying the medical school. Mm -hmm. and, and there were personal and professional things mm -hmm. that were getting me to question why people don't stick with things. Mm -hmm. uh, there, were, there was a, a family um, event that happened where a family member was had who had been diagnosed with Crohn's disease, a stomach disorder, and had been rushed into emergency surgery and, and told, you know, just saved his life and was told, change your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, and he said he was going to do that. And I really thought he would, mm -hmm. uh, but he didn't follow through with it 100%. And it mm -hmm. really scared me. I was frustrated, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm really close to my family mm -hmm. and it uh, I mean that along with other other things just going on at the time I was in a band and, and working in um, in uh, with mobile apps and, and things like that at this time mm -hmm. and was really questioning why people don't stick with things why we don't stick with things that we plan to do mm -hmm. uh, and why other people when when we want other people to do things that they tell us they want to do why they don't do it either so i started studying this and integrating the psychology that i was learning mm -hmm. um integrating the the medicine and the health approach that i was having and integrating technologies that i was working with mm -hmm. and and really throughout this process um i realized that the same questions that i was having of why people don't stick with things a lot of other people were not only having the same questions, but really suffering mm -hmm. um, and not having the answers. Mm -hmm. and, and so it really was, I saw this need, not only for myself and not only for the medical and public health research that I was doing, and not only for the theoretical psychology work that I was doing, but really um, this area of needing to be able to change behavior it's not a new area. It's not like um, books haven't been written on it, but there is a science out there that I learned of how to address it and that science had not been addressed and that's why I wrote Stick With It. So can you talk for a few minutes about what the myth is, the, the, myths, the two or three top myths that people have about making change and how those myths have been proven wrong by a lot of the research that, you're done, that you've done? Yeah, so, so one major myth is that if you want to be able to change something, mm -hmm. just give people information and it will change it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's all that they need. That's, that's a big myth because it assumes so many things. It assumes, uh, you know, first it assumes people are going to understand the information. Mm -hmm. But then, then there's the assumption that uh, people are going to be acting on it, that they're going to be able to act on it, that they're going to want to act on it. It, it assumes so many different things. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that's, you know, that's one myth. Another myth along with that, and, and this is probably 
the biggest and most important myth. Mm-hmm. And that, that is that if people are unable to make a change, mm-hmm. that it's because there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that if I want to be able to exercise more and I can't do it, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I just keep on, I do it for a few days and then I stop, that it's because I'm lazy or because I'm not motivated or because I lack discipline. And mm-hmm. that's what we're taught to think about people, um, about ourselves and about others, that if we or others aren't doing things that we're supposed to be doing or we want to be doing, that it's because of some internal personality thing that's wrong with us. Mm-hmm. And we're taught to change that. We're taught to become like other people who are able to do this, become a new person. So, um, so people look at Richard Simmons and how much he loves exercising and mm-hmm. let's exercise together. And they, so they'll say, well, if, if you aren't exercising, it's because you're not motivated to do it. Uh, and then tr- they, the conventional wisdom tries to get people motivated, get people inspired so that they can become like Richard Simmons. But we can't change who we are. First of all, we can't really change much of who we are. Um, second, it makes us feel badly about ourselves to tell ourselves or for other people to tell us or for us to think that we need to change who we are, that we're not right as people, we need to become new people, and it just makes the problem worse. Um, And then third, it's not the correct science. We actually don't need to change who we are as a person. We shouldn't try to change who we are as a person. We just need to make little tweaks in our lives, and by making those tweaks in our environment, in our behavior, things like that, we can actually have profound effects on change and be able to, to change things. So, um, so two so far is education. If, if you give people education, that will change things sometimes, but, but no, that's a myth that it will do it completely, that, that that's all that's needed. Um, that change who you are as a person, no, that's a myth. Don't change who you are as a person change your process for doing things. And, and there are a lot of other myths, you know, that if people are incentivized, if, if they have financial incentives, if you pay people to do things, they'll do it. That's clearly doesn't always work. And there's even a threshold of, of income. So there are a lot of, a lot of myths out there. Um, and that's why there's such, this is such a big industry and a self-help industry that people go from, self-help book to self-help book or from motivational speaker to motivational speaker because there's really been no solution to this area and so what we're taught to think and all we can all we can achieve um all we're that we can achieve is to feel motivated to make change so let's go to a motivational speaker who's going to pump us up and get us excited about doing things but how long will that last? Just a temporary emotion. And so then we need to go to another one or another book. Um, and instead, there's the, the science about change is not saying you need to go get motivation all the time, all the time, all the time. It's just about making tweaks in your process, and then you can stick with things you want to do. 
and uh, so one of the reasons that um, I wanted to do this particular event is you talk about ways for people to change their own behavior, but you also talk a lot of the work that you've done has been applied to people who are selling, like you said, talking about selling apps or are trying to get people to comply with medical requirements. Like um, you were talking about AIDS prevention, but or that's one of the things you talk about in the book, but you also talk about, I mean, all, the stuff can also be applied to things like diabetes or heart disease, where you have to make changes in your lifestyle, changes in, in your um, diet, as well as your exercise patterns. So you don't just talk about how to change, an individual can change themselves. The book actually does talk about the fact that it's possible for businesses and for healthcare workers and for others to create um, pathways, straightforward pathways for change. Can you sort of talk for a few minutes about um, one of the things you talk about is something called ladders, or, and that was a surprise because I'd never heard anybody talk about the fact that, that there are incremental steps to making huge changes and specifically how to design those steps so people can go from, they can do things that would otherwise have been seen as impossible. So can you sort of talk about um, some of the mechanisms that you, you see, you've seen work when it comes for people changing their own behavior and or changing the behavior of others? Yeah, and I would say actually, I only backed into the, we can change ourselves. As a researcher and the work that I do with patients and in public health, mm -hmm. uh, it's actually about changing other people. So it's actually mm -hmm. more applicable to the business example where we are constantly working on how do we, in the public health and medicine example, how do we get people to do things that everyone knows are good for them, we know are good for people, it's good for a public health system, it's good for people's health, but people don't do it. Mm -hmm. And throughout that process of learning how to change other people, mm -hmm. um, we can also, I've, I've learned, and it's really the same psychology, so we can be able to apply that back to ourselves and use the same psychology to change ourselves. Uh, so, and I think that's really one important and central theme within Stick With It, that this is not, this is not a self-help book, it's not mm -hmm. a health book, it's not a business book. It's, it really talks about the psychology of change. And, and if you understand that psychology of behavior change, you can apply it to any area in life. So what is the, the idea and stick with it? Um, I talk about there's a, a two-step process to change. Mm -hmm. So first is figure out what type of behavior you're trying to change, mm -hmm. because not all behaviors are the same. Mm -hmm. So first figure out what type of, there are three types of behaviors. First figure out what type of behavior you're trying to change. And then uh, it's either in what I call an A, B, or C behavior, an mm -hmm. automatic burning or common behavior. Mm -hmm. Once you figure out whether you're trying to change an A, B, or C behavior, then there's a set of, of tools that can be used to change those three types of behaviors. Mm -hmm. I created a framework for these tools. There are seven of the tools. Mm -hmm. And I created a framework using the acronym SCIENCE, where each one of the, the letters of the word science stands for a different one of these seven forces. So um, and it's, it's not called science because you need to be a scientist or you need to be a doctor. It's, 
It's that uh, these are rooted in science. They're rooted in decades of psychological and scientific research, and, and that's why um, it's called science. So what are these, these seven tools or forces? And I can go into later why, I, why it's important that they are forces. Um, the first one is step ladders. Um, step ladder, so the S stands for step ladders, mm -hmm. C stands for community, I stands for important, E stands for easy, N stands for neurohacks, next C stands for captivating, and then the last E stands for ingrained. So step ladders, like you asked about, that's the idea of doing things in small incremental steps. Um, so the idea here is, uh, here's an example. I ran into someone at the market and, uh, and he was telling me he had recently tried to run a marathon and he recently went to run a marathon. Now as a background on him, he ran cross country in high school. So he had experience knowing how to run. He then went off into the, the language institute. So he went into the military and um, there's the language institute where he was trained in Arabic. Um, after that, so he's a smart guy. He learned, he went into army intelligence. After that, he spent time, served our country in Afghanistan and as part of uh, army intelligence. And then after that, he, he came back. It, it had now been a few years, and, and he decides, I'm going to run a marathon. Well, he got to mile 19 of this marathon, and then he collapsed. He couldn't finish it. And turned out the, the reason was he didn't train for the marathon. So, but, but if you had heard about his profile, I mean, you would think he's got everything that you need to be able to complete a marathon. He had the training in high school where he knew how, he had the knowledge of, of how to run distance. He had discipline. He was, he was in army intelligence. He, was, he had the discipline as a, a military veteran. Um, he's smart. He was in intelligence. He learned multiple languages. He had, he had everything that we would say you need to be able to stick with something like that. But what he was missing was the actual incremental training to be able to run the marathon. So I, actually, I think it's really impressive that he got to mile 19 um, without even training. Um, I know I would not be able to run a marathon without training. So, but, but I think this is a good example because we all do things like this in our daily life. We all plan steps that are much bigger than we can actually do. We plan New Year's resolutions to go to the gym um, every day for the coming year when we've maybe gone once um, the past month. And it's just what I call a dream. It's too far off. So in Stick With It, I created this figure called Steps, Goals, and Dreams. And that talks about, uh, and that talks about uh, how to quantify, because how do you know how small something is to make it an incremental step? Well, uh, 
this figure steps, goals, and dreams breaks it up. And if something takes more than three months to accomplish, like for me, running a marathon would take more than three months, it's what I call a dream. Um, if something takes about one to three months, it's a goal. And if it takes a week or a day or two, it's what I call a step. And uh, by so if I want to be able to exercise more and I don't run ever, or I don't go to the gym or I don't exercise, just getting a pair of running shoes, that's a first step. Um, and so by using this figure and this method for quantifying it, we can use steps, goals, and dreams and be able to plan uh, change that's the right size in, in, by using steps, goals, and dreams. So that's an example of step ladders. Then the, the next one of the seven forces, C stands for community. Community is the idea that we want to be different and we feel that we are, are different um, than the crowd, but the crowd actually really has a big influence on us um, through social support and, and competition, friendly competition. That can really drive us to stick to change. So the, this idea of community we've really leveraged this in our hope interventions like you talked about with whether it's HIV or with opioid and, and chronic pain patients. Um, we've built these online communities called Hope Intervention, which stands for Harnessing Online Peer Education. And these are 12-week interventions where we, where we recruit participants or patients at UCLA and the medical school. Um, we'll have Patients who are experiencing chronic pain or at risk for HIV will have them join a 12-week online community, which is rooted in the science of behavior change and building these communities. And we find within 12 weeks, um, people in our groups are about two to three times as likely to change their behavior and stick with it compared to people who aren't in our groups. And so it really leverages the the force and the science of, of community. Um, and, and a big part of that is having peer leaders who are helping to drive change and have change spread. And, and in Stick With It, I, I go through that science of how, how do you become a peer leader or how do you recruit peer leaders and how do you use that? Um, how do you create communities to change others or how do you join a community for yourself? Um, so that's C in science. Then the next letter I stands for important. And important's the idea that we will continue doing things if they're important to us. And we'll stick with things if, if we care about them, if they're important to us. This, this actually is, is one that um, people often think, they, they take the flip side of that and they'll say, well, if it's not important to someone, then they won't do it. So let's, if something's not important, if change isn't important, if someone doesn't care about um, exercising or quitting smoking or, or doing something, then they're not going to do it. Well, we've actually found that's not true. And that's, that's I think, an interesting thing. Um, and that's why there are seven of these forces as opposed to just one. It's not just important, there are seven of them. And, we found with our hope communities, for example, we can get people to get tested for HIV. I mean, come on, who actually 
wants to get an HIV test. I don't know anyone that really is excited to go get an HIV test, um, but we can, by building that science of community, we can get people to change. So, um, but but in important in this chapter, we talk about there's a, a short list that I give of how to make things important to people if it's not already important. Uh, next, um, the E in science stands for easy. And this is the idea that things that are easy to do, people will keep doing. Um, it's, it's really as, as simple of an idea as that, but it's really difficult to apply in our lives because we often make things much more complicated than they need to be in our lives. Um, we make things, uh, we, we think that things need to be complicated for them to be good, for them to be right. But no, the simplest things when it comes to behavior change, the simplest things are the ones that will get us to stick with it. Uh, you know, to, to give an example of how to apply easy in our own lives, um, I, so I work at UCLA, I used to work um, on campus, and I would go to the gym on campus. And I was very consistent about going to the gym. And then I moved, and I, my office moved to off campus, about three quarters of a mile, a mile south of the main campus. So now I had to be able to walk, and it would take me 45 minutes or so to be able to walk to the gym where I was, where I used to be going all the time. Stopped going to the gym, didn't go as frequently. And if, if someone had not known that story and they had just watched or, or heard I stopped going to the gym, they'd probably say, hey, he lost motivation to go to the gym or he got lazy, he's gotten older and, and he's just not motivated anymore now as he's gotten older. Uh, but no, that's, that's not why I stopped. I stopped because it was no longer convenient. It's no longer easy for me to go to the gym. So what I did was I switched that and I, I changed gyms. So I now go to the gym right across the street from my work. And I bring the, my gym bag to work with me everywhere I go. So that when I leave work and I'm on the way to the parking lot to my car, I have to pass by that gym and I'm holding my bag and I see the gym. And so it's almost, it's almost easier for me to go into the gym and go exercise than it is for me to keep on walking and go to the car. That's a way that you leverage the force of easy and, and can make things easy for ourselves. Um, next, N stands for neurohacks. Neurohacks is what we were talking about at, at the beginning. Neurohacks are, um, I created this, this term to mean ways to do a quick mental shortcut to change our brain and get us to think and act in ways we've never been able to before. So neurohacks are, um, if, you've, if you've heard of or thought about epiphany moments where people just decide, I'm changing, I'm never doing this again. And you know sometimes it works, that's because they've created a neurohack. Um, so there's, there's a, a classic story of, of uh, Benjamin Franklin and, and a neurohack that he did. He was running for his second term as a clerk and he needed to get votes, but there was, um, there was someone who was a rival who didn't like him and he needed this person's vote and he needed the person's approval. 
So what was he going to do? Well, he realized that this man was a collector of rare books. And so he, he realized, okay, I'm going to turn this into a neurohack. I'm going to ask the man to borrow one of his really rare books. And when he returns the book, or when he gives me the book, you know, first he's going to be flattered by this request, um, which is what happened. So he asked the man to borrow the book. The man is flattered that Benjamin Franklin knew he had this rare book. He's flattered that he's asking for the rare book. And, and so he gladly gives it over. He's excited to share it with him. Benjamin Franklin keeps it for a week and sends the book back with a nice thank you note, really appreciative that, that he was able to lend the book to him. And, and now this simple event of just asking the man to borrow this rare book and then sending a thank you note back to him, it changed forever the way the man thought of Benjamin Franklin, created a neurohack uh, and made the two of them become friends, not just temporarily, but they stayed friends for life. Benjamin Franklin won him his friendship, won the clerkship, got his votes. Now, how did it work? Why, why was this a neurohack? Because by asking for this book, borrowing it, and then giving the thank you note, Benjamin Franklin had changed this person's mind. Um, you know, we, we say change starts in the mind. We're taught change starts in the mind. But he couldn't just tell the person to think differently. That didn't work. But, it, but by changing the person's behavior, he got him to think differently. What happened is um, that man who was a rival, you know, if you don't like someone, you don't let them borrow your things. You don't, they don't send you thank you notes for bar. That's things that friends do. And so what it got him to do was rethink his whole perception of his identity as someone who is not friends with Benjamin Franklin, who doesn't like Benjamin Franklin, changed his identity and got him to realize, I must be friends with him. I must like him. Otherwise, I wouldn't have lent him this book and he wouldn't have given me this thank you note. That's an idea and the power behind a neurohack. Next, C stands for captivating um, and captivating, these are captivating rewards. And this is the idea that rewards matter to create change. If we, um, if we want to create change, then we will do it if we are rewarded for doing it. But you can't just use any reward. It has to be one that's truly captivating. That's why the chapter is not called rewards. It's called captivating rewards. Uh, and so, you know, for example, there was a gamification fad where that, that has come and fizzled out about giving people points and badges. But not everyone, points and badges don't resonate with everyone. Um, and it wears off for a lot or most people. So you really got to figure out, um, and it goes back to important, what's important to people? What motivates them? And that's the reward that, that can be really captivating. Um, finally, E stands for ingrained. Ingrained is the idea that um, when you do things over and over and over again, they become ingrained in your brain and they're easy to do. It becomes a routine. So Barack Obama was known for wearing the same clothes 
all the time, the same outfits or eating the same food at lunchtime so we could save time for decisions about the country. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, is he supposedly has 20 pairs of the same shirt um, so he can save time for, for, for work. Um, writer Ernest Hemingway was, was known for writing every day in the morning. Um, if you make a routine out of something, you'll be more likely to stick with it. Saves time on your brain, saves energy, and allows you to stick with it. So those are the seven forces behind lasting change. And then um, whether something is in A, automatic, B, burning, or C, common behavior, will determine which of those seven forces we should use. So another thing I found interesting in interesting in um, reading the book is that you, you had a line where you talked about the fact that what people think is important is not what you mean by the word important. And so there are a lot of terms in the book that when you read the book, you come up with a new definition that's actually kind of more related more important to the science of change. Like you, just a moment ago, you um, talked about captivating and figuring out exactly what, what is captivating and how to marry the, marry the captivating reward with the behavior that you're trying, the behavior you're trying to um, reinforce. And specifically, tying that into the notion of having um, a stepladder or a set of goals that are very narrow so that you, you actually create a, a series of rewards that will, when you're doing something hard so that every day or two or every, you know, every two or three days, you're actually giving yourself a reward for making progress toward a goal. And you talked about the fact that that's the same thing you do when you're trying to change the behavior of other people, that, that you're, the captivating reward of the payoff has to come on a regular basis and it has to be relevant to the thing the change that they're trying they're trying to make do i understand that correctly yeah the the captivating reward um the the idea behind the captivating reward it's it's rooted in um goes back th this idea of captivating really goes back about 75 almost 100 years to psychology research that was done on cats and rats by behaviorists <laughs> where they, and they it's been extrapolated to say um people are like cats and rats and that's why mm -hmm. that's why it's not just rewards it's captivating rewards because um <clears throat> a lot of the science has been misinterpreted um so the the idea is um, what what they were able to find these behaviorists they would they weren't very animal friendly and they would trap a, a cat in a box and then the cat when the cat would escape from the box they'd reward the cat and that was a way of teaching the cat how to get out of the box well um, so what they learned was that if you reward animals um, animals will learn how to do things. And, and people are the same way, but you can't just give any reward. For the cat, getting out of the box was a huge reward in and of itself. You know, the cat didn't want to be there. And so um, being able to, to get out of that box was, was a big reward. Well, for people, um, you know, going back to a points or badges example, you can't just give people points or badges 
and expect that that will create change because you know the analogy is the the feeling that the cat got from getting out of the box is not equal to the feeling a person gets when they get five points for doing something so the reason why it's captivating rewards and needs to link back to what's important is that we need to as much as possible try to if we want to motivate ourselves or motivate others we have to use the equivalent type of reward that the cat felt when it was free and not trapped in a box anymore so so and that's kind of an interesting thing when you're trying to reward people for behaviors that are associated with something as complex as um choosing to get hiv tested um or choosing to um, reduce the amount of uh, sugar that you eat in your diet or conforming to your diet or um, when you talked about your friend that had to make significant life changes because they'd gotten a whole new health complaint that totally was going to remake their life like every moment of your life is all of a sudden you know the older you get <laughs> the older you get the more you and people you know end up being the guy that gets heart disease and all of a sudden their diet completely has to change and that's impacting every single minute of their day so how do you so coming up with a reward that sort of gives them the payoff and ingraining that behavior over a long period of time so the, the repercussions of your work are pretty profound if it can if and it seems to be effective at making people make those kinds of changes and i think it has a lot to do with captivating captivating reward doing that calculation like what is going to make what's going to be make this worth your while you know yeah and change is not easy this is mm -hmm. not this is not something where i want to say you know stick with it is the solution it's mm -hmm. an easy solution it's it's not an easy solution unfortunately you know it's it's not it's not just a pill that's going to magically make everything change in your life but it is a blueprint it is a recipe and it will make people be able to stick with things that they haven't been able to do um, it obviously requires work on the individual but but we haven't had that science before to even know how to do it and so um so it it provides the the science behind how to do it but change is difficult but it's doable it's possible and we've shown that in our studies where consistently we're able to be able to help people to change their behaviors to improve their lives to be healthier um, by integrating the science together so you've actually uh, you mentioned in the book that you have received more than 10 million dollars of um, grants and, and uh, financial investment in your in the development of this methodology and can you and can you talk about some of the companies that that come of the companies and some of the organizations that um, made those investments and sort of what their goals were because that that's interesting to me that they would think it was important enough to spend 10 million dollars on yeah so the our biggest mm -hmm. funder is the national institutes of health mm -hmm. um, where they they care on a, you know their the national institutes of health funds research um, they fund all kinds of researchers a lot of health and medical researchers and and their goal is really to um, understand to to study how to understand and improve the health of of americans and uh, 
that is and the rest of the world and this is you know a central mission of theirs and so when there is a pressing public health problem um, they want to be there to help fund innovative research behind it they've been so generous with with our research and our work and so helpful um, i mean i would not have the i so fortunate the work that i do the career that i have and i would not have it without the help and support of the nih um, and then there are different institutes within the nih national institute of mental health um, they fund our hiv work and our, our drug um, some of the the drug work and in mental health work there's national institute on drug abuse they find fund our research with on opioids there's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, they fund HIV work, um, National Human Genome Research Institute. Now I feel like I just have to keep on naming, I don't want to leave, leave them out. Um, well, you also uh, did like, you also mentioned like, uh, you also have big tech, big tech companies like Facebook and um, you have yeah, big, Facebook, that's an interesting thing. So, and I, the interesting thing is that um, you wouldn't think that, actually, I'm just going to take a step back. So when you guys are, when you're using this to treat drug addiction, are you tr using it to treat the psychological addiction that comes after the physical addiction is over? So let's say that I've been taking, I've been taking opioids and, you know, I've finally gotten off the opioids from a physical standpoint. I don't have the, I'm not in withdrawal. So do you, act, are you focusing on, on creating change in that time afterwards so that they stay off the opioids? Yeah, so, so stick with it can really be applied to any type of behavior. Um, so it could be applied to, to any of those situations where, where we've focused with our, we've just completed a study and we're just analyzing the results of it. And the, this was with um, chronic pain patients. So these are UCLA patients who are on chronic opioid therapy. They've been prescribed opioid therapy um, by their doctor and um, they've been on it for at least three months and experiencing chronic pain and they are at risk for addiction and an overdose. So then the goal of it is given this high risk sample, this high risk group of patients who are at risk for addiction, at risk for overdose, um, can we be able to leverage the science, um, this hope community, to be able to get them engaged, talking about their pain, talking about chronic pain, create an outlet for them where they don't typically have one. Up there's a, a question here. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll answer this question. Why might, the question is, why might one find discipline easy in one part of life that most others find difficult, like exercise, but can't necessarily transfer that discipline to other areas. Why might we find discipline easy in certain areas, but not others? Might it have something to do with immediate rewards as opposed to delayed gratification? Okay, um, yeah, good, good question. The, we often find that we're able to so there's a, a friend of mine who's a film person and uh, and he said, you know, I'm really good 
at the, the part of the book that's about personal behaviors like exercising, that really doesn't resonate with me as much as um, how to be able to get myself to stop procrastinating or to get the film people that I work with to show up on time, things like that. You know, we often find we are good at doing some things and not as good at doing other things. Um, turns out that that the psychology behind all of that is pretty much the same. And so what we can do is is look into our own lives of what is it that makes us good at doing some things, and then we can reproduce that environment um, in other areas. Uh, so if you're disciplined about going back to the, the gym example, if you're disciplined about going to the gym, um, what is it that allows you to be able to go to the gym all the time? Maybe it's like in my case, I said, I go to the gym across the street from me and I always have a gym bag with me. So if you want to apply that to some other part of life, which may be difficult, um, let's say um, stopping procrastinating, then the the science is making it easy to stop procrastinating. Let's say if if I am procrastinating on writing something, then have that if I write using a word processing program, have that word processing program up on my screen with no other um, software applications on the screen. That makes it easy for me to focus on it. So we can apply that same science in multiple parts of our lives um, across areas of our life. And, and that's really the idea behind Stick With It, that we can take this recipe, um, this framework, this process, and instead of trying to change who we are as a person, change the process. So, so with that, I'll, um, I will wrap up and, yes. and I'll say that I, I just want to thank you, Nancy, thank everyone, and, and feel free, everyone, to get in touch with me. You can, obviously, I hope if you like this and if it was helpful, you'll, you'll go get stick with it. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your local bookstore. Mm -hmm. um, it, was a, it was a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller. So it's it's Big really got a lot of traction and and uh, you can also you can tweet at me at Sean Young PhD or on my website at seanyoungphd.com.